This week's episode of the Velo News Podcast, sponsored by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on your performance of your sleep and how recovered your body is and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Every day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based off of your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. Is it going to be a big day? Is it going to be a chill day? The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you targeted exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activities, so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate, throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. You may have read or listened to some of our podcasts with Kate Courtney talking about how Whoop has helped her with her performance goals. Basically, it tracks your sleep, your heart rate, all these other factors, wraps it all together and tells you if you can have a big day, if your body's recovered and you're ready to take on, you know, some five-hour monster ride, or if you need to chill. Some days, hey, the motivation is there, but your body actually needs an extra day of rest, and Whoop is the tool that can tell you that. Okay, right now we have a great deal for listeners of the podcast. If you use the code VELONEWS, all caps, VELONEWS, at checkout, go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P. Again, code VELONEWS at checkout. You get 15% off. So you can sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Thanks so much to Whoop for sponsoring the podcast. All right, let's get on with the show. News Podcast, Fred Dreyer, coming to you from a sunny day in Boulder, Colorado. That's right. My mountain vacation is done. I'm back in Boulder, and it feels good to be back riding on some of these same old roads and the climbs that hurt my legs. Oh, they're so hard. I did not get any faster while I was up there in Crested Butte. Hey, good episode coming up this week. The second half of the show, I have an interview with Andrew Willis. Andrew is the owner and operator of the Driveway Series in Austin, Texas. The driveway is one of the, um, it's a very, it's a thriving weekly criterium series in Austin. It's held on an auto racetrack. It is the cornerstone of one of the healthier road scenes in the United States right now. And, um, you know, Andrew and his crew have built up a community of 400, 500 or so regular participants, which you just don't see that much. Um, the reason I interviewed Andrew is because the driveway is one of the first races to get back racing during the COVID pandemic. You may have seen photos circulating on social media of riders standing on podiums while wearing masks, um, waiting to get into the driveway uh, venue, getting their temperatures taken, that type of stuff. Um, I wanted to call up Andrew and talk about this because I saw these photos and I think like a lot of people was immediately alarmed, like, oh my God, people are racing bikes again. Don't you know there's a pandemic going on? And um, the story that Andrew has to tell of why he has returned to racing and the safety protocols that are being employed, I think is an interesting one to hear. I think um, I, I'm like a lot of people, we th see things on social media, we jump to a quick judgment and we have our firm opinions based on something we've seen or something that someone has written. Um, as it turns out, there is a deeper story there about A, why the series has returned, and B, the safety protocols that they employed and followed for the riders. You may not agree with them. You may see this as a major public health crisis. Um, that's fine. I guess I would just ask you to listen to the interview with Andrew about his decision to come back and the safety protocols they are following before um, you know, making a firm judgment on it. Um, I feel like that's fair. Uh, that's second half of the show. First part of the show, I'm linking up with Andrew Hood and James Start. Uh, we are recording this final day of June. We're about 60 days, I think. We are 60 days out from the start of the Tour de France. And the picture of what the tour is going to look like is getting somewhat clearer. The UCI has released specific rules and protocols for how teams will operate during the COVID-19 pandemic. We discussed some of those. Also, the Tour de France rosters are getting ironed out and we have a much clearer picture of what, who the riders are gonna be, objectives for teams. We still have some lingering questions around some teams, but we get into all of that with Andrew and James. Hey, before we get to that though, I wanted to reiterate uh, what I talked about on the podcast last week, which is our 
great new membership program called Active Pass. Um, really excited about this digital membership program that we launched last week. Again, it is $99 a year. You get a magazine subscription, two free books, training plans with today's plan, you know, more than a thousand workouts. You get entry into the Elephant Rock Grand Fondo, part of Royal Massif, uh, personalized news feed, industry discounts from some of our partners. It's really cool. Again, I did the math an estimation and estimated at about $350 worth of value that you get for 99 bucks a year. And really this thing is all about fueling your stoke for cycling. I know we're in strange times right now. There aren't that many events or any events. I know we're all wanting to continue our passion for cycling. And I see active pass as a great way to do that. You know, if you've ever wanted to train with a coach, um, you get the today's plan. If you want to put an event on your calendar, you have Elephant Rock. And if you just want a deeper stoke on cycling, you know, these books that we have through Velo Press, magazine subscriptions, and access to daily um, content on the site, I think it's just a, it's a great way to do it and, and a way that drives a ton of value. So again, um, check it out, velonews.com forward slash active pass. Um, check it out today. Okay, let's get on to Andrew Hood and James Start. Okay, after a couple weeks off, I am uh, happy to be joined by Andrew Hood and James Start on the podcast. Uh, Andy, we're going to start with you. You know, the last time we checked in with you, um, social distancing and COVID rules across Spain were beginning to lift. People were uh, being able to like go back to the groceries and stuff. Now, it sounds like um, things have completely changed and... Um, we're seeing situation in Spain similar to what we see in, in the U.S. with people like going to the beach and going to restaurants. What's it like over there? Yeah, Spain lifted restrictions about 10 days ago. Uh, we went actually to the, some beaches over the long weekend here in Spain. And it's encouraging, but also kind of frightening at the same time. There were so many people packed onto the beaches. In fact, they had uh, kind of some uh, police people there controlling access to the to the beach when it got too crowded they wouldn't let more people onto the beach which is a good idea but just in general you, you know we were just nervous it was a sensation that people would just assume this thing's going away and everyone's going back to normal and not a lot of mascarillas not a lot of masks out there but that was kind of in this little resort town we were also in barcelona and, and people are wearing a mask in the street it just seems like it's uh, the message you know, it has been more clear, I would say, over here, clearer here in, the, in Europe, more consistent. Uh, but it's had a huge impact. I mean, overall, the, the cases are very low in, in Spain and across some of these countries that were heavily impacted. I know France and, and Italy have also come way down. So encouraging signs for racing. We'll see. And James, the last time we caught up with you, I mean, you were taking some of your first bike rides outside mm -hmm. and same thing in France, restrictions were beginning to lift and life was taking on some degree of normalcy. That was uh, about a month ago. What is, uh, what's life like right now in Paris? Yeah, I would say it's almost back to normal. It's, uh, I mean, it's, I would, it's sort of strange, but uh, I rode through the city uh, oh, over the weekend, I think it was. And I was almost, you know, when somebody's walking across and everybody was out in the street and bars and stuff. And when people were wearing a mask, that was looked odd, actually, um, just to see how quickly they've they've uh, come come out of that mindset, which is not necessarily a good thing. But it's it's there. I think very much right now, people are just so happy to be able to be outside and not stress too much. I mean, you still have to have masks to go into certain establishments and things like that. Um, but you know, it's 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 changing quickly. The one thing that's interesting is we just had our mayoral elections all around the country and the green party uh, did outstanding all around the country. Um, and why is that interesting? Not because I want to particularly talk politics, but because their agenda is very, very bike friendly. And the, uh, the mayor here who got, uh, Anne Hildago, who, who put together a, uh, a sort of contingent of the left and the greens and stuff won overwhelmingly. And she's proposing stripping, 50 to 75% of the public parking spaces on the street in Paris and turning them into pedestrian lanes and bike lanes. Um, and so this is, I think, a, a, you know, one of the things there's going to be in good and bad fallout from this, this coronavirus, but it certainly has made 
cities around the world understand that the need to find green ways of mobility and the bike is obviously as good as it gets. So don't rent a car the next time in Paris. That's what you're telling me. No. Okay. (laughs) Well, guys, you know, we are 60 days out today from the start of the Tour de France and there's still uh, so much that we have yet to learn and so much that has to be decided about what the Tour de France is going to look like from a safety protocol uh, perspective. (laughs) But since we last checked up, there has been some news in the world of cycling around, um, you know, protocols, precautions around COVID-19. And on today's podcast, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Chris Froome. We're going to talk um, the boiling uh, labor fight, potential labor fight on the horizon, um, and just all sorts of fun stuff going on World Tour Racing. So the first thing is, a few weeks ago, UCI rolls out this um, list of uh, guidelines, medical guidelines for COVID-19, a few takeaways. Riders and staffs will be tested by teams starting before starting any race. Teams will operate with groups called bubbles that include riders, staffers, and other personnel. Those groups will enter a larger Peloton bubble during the race. The idea is to try to keep track of everyone. COVID czar will be appointed by each race organizer to coordinate all mitigation plans. Health controls will be conducted throughout the race with social distancing rules designed to limit contact between groups. A series of protocols will be introduced around the level of risk. In case of a positive COVID-19 case, the patient will be transported to local hospital, yada, yada, yada. I mean, this is sort of a working document that's very much uh, geared towards the riders and teams. Um, I thought this was going to be sort of the, I was hoping it was going to be the final list of rules. Obviously it's not because um, last week the Tour de France came out and said that we're going to have to wait till basically the end of July before the Tour creates its own rule book for COVID-19, for the writers, for fans, for media, for journalists. And based on your reporting and your conversations, what are um, some of the ideas that people are throwing out there about what those could look like? You know, the UCI has its own rules of this bubbles and stuff, but what do we think the Tour de France and ASO is going to do for its race? Uh, I'll jump in here first, uh, James. Sorry, I think it's going to be a... A uh, situation where the priority is going to be on the event and the teams. The last thing a big race wants, especially like the Tour de France, is to have the race come to a screeching halt in terms of either having a case or having some sort of problems with uh, the larger health issues of the crowd. So I can expect to see a very controlled start and finish area with public being kept at a large, quite large distances away from where the Peloton will line up. And then on the open road, you know, I bet they'll, you know, they'll probably will allow the fans to line the course. Of course, ASO sounds like they're still going to have a publicity caravan and they can't give up that. Uh, Maybe a little bit reduced caravan. So I think they're going to try to, you know, kind of cut it both ways. Have the fans on the road, have, you know, some sort of social distancing in place. So they're not getting these huge packs of fans. You know, it might be a very different looking tour but i think for them is the focus is all going to be about let's get the race to the finish line let's cash some checks and keep our sport alive um i think that's all pretty spot on i i talked to uh, somebody aso today unnamed source i guess you would say um and confirm one thing to me that i don't think aso really knows yet um i know that when i talked to the press officer uh he said clearly we are coming up with three, if not four different strategies from uh, business as normal, the way we've seen it in the last, in the past years, to something, uh, you know, more, more stringent, to something more, much more radical, uh, where, you know, uh, media and fans are going to be held really at a very long distance and you have to be wearing masks 24-7 for the month. Um, and where uh well you know and, and you're just not gonna have any access if you're a fan or a journalist to the race still being canceled i mean if we get hit with the second wave uh like it's happening in the states and it happens to happen five days you know uh, we, uh, the u.s just had its, its five worst days i believe well if france gets a second wave and it's the five worst days uh of the coronavirus right before the tour well goodbye tour just forget it um, one thing that seems to be a given in terms of access for the fans, he said, 
uh, or she said, since it's an unnamed source, I can't really, don't want to uh, isolate anybody, um, was that don't count on driving up any mountain passes. If you're going to come to the tour and you want to see the race on the mountain, you're going to get up there with your own two feet or with a bike. But there's not going to be many mountain passes where you can drive up or take a camper up or anything like that. Um, so that's something that, that I got flushed out with uh, earlier today. Yeah, and I mean, when you um, apply that within the spectrum of the tour already being at a time when a lot of people have gone back to work and gone back to school, I mean, I think it's a no-brainer that one thing we can say about the 2020 Tour de France is that the crowds are going to be the smallest in a long time. Um, and and yeah, I mean, the waiting game, I've, I've gotten some pushback from some people saying, well, why isn't the tour rolling this stuff out right now? Why aren't they publicizing this now to let people know and let the teams know and give them plenty of warning, which, you know, 60 days... Those 60 days are going to go by quickly. But yeah, James, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, 30 days ago here in the States, like it really looked like we were uh, getting through the worst of it and kind of close to coming out the other side, at least having seen, you know, social distancing and mask wearing, um, having, you know, really reducing the number of cases in a lot of states. And then boom, like within three weeks, there's this huge reversal. And, um, you know, you, don't want to see that happen in Europe at all. But I think I can understand why organizers would um, not necessarily plant their flag in the ground just yet about what it's going to look like uh, because this thing has, you know, we've seen in different countries, it moves so quickly. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm still really curious to see what the guidelines are going to look like for media. I mean, it's a, it's a total selfish question because we all know that, um, you know, one of the, Beautiful things and also frustrating things about cycling and its media is how free and chaotic it is, which is that, you know, riders cross the finish line and then we're sort of turned loose to grab whoever we want. And it's where, you know, a lot of really free and unfiltered comments and perspective can get shared. You know, these riders are exhausted, they're emotional. Um, and when you put that in a more, more controlled environment, where PR people can get to them and where, um, you know, they're thinking a little bit more about like, oh, should I say that? Shouldn't I say that? Um, it's a less free-flowing environment for information. I think all of us could uh, can agree that, well, you know, 2020 is, you know, a very bizarre situation. And so we're, as media, you know, definitely safety comes first and I'm fine surrendering my access to riders for a year. But um, I still come back to the, the access thing. Like, ah, uh, losing some of that chaos, so losing some of that chaos and some of that uh, ability to have free flowing perspective after a race. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't want, I would, I wouldn't want to see that um, going forward. Yeah. Well, I think there's, it's just going to be like everything else. I think there's going to be certain things that are put in place that are going to stay. Um, but you know, not everything. I mean, um, and, and the tour is going to probably be the hardest race to cover this year. I mean, the Giro has already, said that you know they're 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 planning to have a a big start with you know no particular social distancing mm -hmm. uh you know that's pretty much business as usual sicily you know was not uh, hit very heavily uh it was mostly up in northern italy so we'll see where that goes you know and um we'll just have to see where it goes but it's it's i think you know obviously uh, the tour has been getting stricter and stricter every year in terms of access to fans access to media this and that so this will accelerate that as it's accelerating more bike lanes and, and everything else. So, I mean, there's going to be good and bad. I mean, does that mean Fred will never be back on the tour? No. Um, but there's going to be certain things you'll notice when you, if somebody hasn't come back, if somebody isn't there this year, comes back next year in two years and hasn't been to the tour for five years, you're definitely going to notice some differences. And some of those will have been put in from COVID-19. Uh, 60 days out, we're starting to see these teams announce their Tour de France squads, which very much hints at what their Tour de France goals are going to be. Um, not a ton of surprises. I mean, we've seen Jumbo Visma announce a squad that's definitely geared at GC. Gronewagen is not coming. Uh, American Sepkus is getting tapped for the Tour. That's exciting to see. Um, you know, Ineos has named a Tour Long team. You know, one of the names on that um, team that I thought was pretty interesting was Theo Gegenhardt, um, young rider, potentially getting an opportunity to ride the Tour de France. Um, you know, we've seen other teams go for more of a mix. You know, Lato Sudal is uh, going to target the handful of sprint stages of Caleb Ewan, but they have this great lineup of breakaway guys with Philippe Gilbert and uh, Thomas DeHent and Tim Wellens. 
Um, when you looked at some of these teams that are starting to get announced, are there any surprises or uh, just sort of curiosities that come to mind? Um, well, not at Ineos, <laughs> except who, who are who are the leaders going to be, I guess. And I think it's really great uh, Tao is, is on that. He needed to do the tour this year. So I, I wish him luck. He's a, he's a really nice kid. Uh, he's a damn good rider. And, um, you know, if you stay too long in the domestic or the second tier level on a team like Ineos, you can kind of fade away, you know. So it's important for him to continue to make that step. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we're, Andy, we we're chatting, you know, Nibali's going to do the focus on the Giro. I think that's just smart. Uh, he can, you know, he can definitely win another Giro. Winning another tour is going to be hard, I think, at this point um, in his career. Um, but otherwise, you know, one thing that happened when, you know, I did that story on the Lotto team and, you know, they said very clearly, you know, actually our, our team lineup for the tour and the Grand Tours and the Classics hasn't really changed that much. I mean, when we sat down in January, these are the guys that were our top, you know, these guys were the ones who were pitted to do the tour to begin with. And that's what they're going to do. Um, they have to, you know, John, John Degenkohl had to make, you know, a tough decision. Do I do the tour of Poland as a training race or to prepare or Milan San Remo? And he won Milan San Remo. And he said to me, he said, you know, that was a difficult decision because it's really, a, you know, in a beautiful race. And it's one of the ones that's really close to my heart. He said, but I'm a rider who needs to race a lot to get into good race shape. So if I just do Strade Bianchi and Milan San Remo and then like four days of racing somewhere else to go to the tour, I'm just not going to have the legs. I have to do Poland to get have a chance of, of being competitive. So some guys are making choices like that. But, you know, the big favorites that we've been expecting and talking about doing the tour uh, and the big rivalries, uh, you know, Jumbo Visno is not going to divide their three tour leaders suddenly into a tour uh, Giro Vuelta thing. You know, it's they're, they're still they're still making maintaining the tour to be the priority. And I don't think we're seeing huge, huge developments on that front. Andy. Yeah, James, I agree with everything you said. It's quite striking, actually. I think how the how they, the everyone came together to make this schedule, this this revised calendar, that it really hasn't forced too many people to make too many hard decisions. I mean, I guess the biggest thing, of course, you know, having the tour before the Giro, that that obviously is going to throw a curveball into a few people. Um, even though Sagan, you know, I think which is really cool, he's going to race the tour and in the Giro. Um, you know. The choice there, of course, is off to skip out on the monuments or the Giro. Um, but in general, the way the calendar is set up, most teams have been able to keep their um, larger goals mainly intact. You know, take the Olympics out of the schedule this year. And and I think it kind of actually falls into place quite, quite well. Um, the thing that stands out to me so far of these kind of early lists is really just how stacked Jumbo Visma is. And it just confirms how motivated and ambitious that team and franchise is i mean they're going for team ineos this year they want to beat them and they want to win the tour de france you know the, the, the decision there for those guys is going to be who do they back i mean i think the conversations they're having inside that team is let's go with three leaders and let the road decide um eventually i think it probably would be either roglic who has been the most consistent and the strongest over the last year or so or dumoulin but even you know kweiswick he's always just a steady diesel um, but that's the, that's the big kind of, uh, uh, rivalry that I'm looking forward to going into this tour to see a serious team with some serious firepower and legitimate GC contenders really take it to team Ineos. You know, they've won seven out of the last eight tours. Yeah. So that to me is, is the big story that I'm really looking forward to in, in not July, but September. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting, the only thing that's interesting about those sort of team dynamics, when you get like three guys that could each be tour contenders on different teams, all united under the same colors. The only thing that those teams have to watch out for is getting in a situation where maybe one of their weaker riders is in yellow. So they're sort of obliged to defend that. And that makes them vulnerable to attacks by other guys. And um, they actually lose the tour. It makes me think a little bit of the CCC team in 2008 when they had the Schleck brothers and Carlos Sastre. It's a very different thing, but you had, you know, two guys, three, the, the Schleck brothers who were right on, you know, right there for winning the tour. You had Frank Schleck who was going into the Alps in yellow and, and yet they didn't defend him and they let Carlos go on the attack at Alpe d'Huez. And why? Because they weren't confident that, that Schleck could, could hold off Cadell Evans in the last time trial. So you could be stuck with a, the guys going into, to, you know, guy keeps the yellow and then loses it on the last day. 
and, and Sastre surprised Evans, went out, got a bigger gap, and um, and you know, and a, a gap good enough to hold. I don't really. That, that said, pretty much everybody on Ineos and uh, Jumbo is a pretty darn good time trialer. We're not looking at a lot of time trials here. The last one uh, is up the uh, the Planche de Belfi. That's an uphill time trial. Uh, that's going to favor any of those GC riders that are good climbers. Good climbers always do well in the final TT of the tour because it's about freshness more than anything else. Um, so, you know, whatever. But they have to be careful that, you know, their weakest of the third guys doesn't get in, in, the, in a break. They don't send him up, and all of a sudden that blocks the racing for the other guys. You know, I feel like there's still some questions that I have le- that are left to be answered in these um, team announcements and roster lineups. Um, the teams that I am still keeping an eye on is first um, to Cunic Quickstep, and then Mitchelton Scott. Uh, Mitchelton Scott has not announced its long team or its roster, and basically what is going to happen. You know, both Yates brothers, one Yates brother. Like, who is going to be the team's leader, and what? Uh, you know, who are they going to throw at the tour versus the Giro is a lingering question that I have. And then with Quick Step, it's like, you know, Philippe had said months and months ago that he wasn't going to target the GC, that he was going to save, you know, use the tour to build towards the Olympics. The Olympics are obviously off. So what does that mean for him? And then, you know, are they going to bring a sprinter? Are they going to try and target the sprint stages or build a team around Philippe and GC and stage wins? Those are the two lingering the teams that you know I haven't seen a whole lot of news from in terms of roster that I feel like it could add clarity towards what this GC battle is going to look like. Yeah, well, uh, you know they uh, they don't they're they're off in the mountains already. Uh, the Koenig has been tra- uh, training on the mountains and the cobbles. Uh, we'll see. They just you know and Alaphilippe and this is a great course for Alaphilippe. I mean, if last year he held the jersey for fifteen days, fourteen days, whatever it was, this year he could he could easily do that again. These 1500 meter climbs that riddle this year's tour are just perfect for him. I mean, he's almost unbeatable at that level. Um, but, you know, he's going to, they, they did not, you know, he was very isolated, didn't have much t- climbing support last year, and they didn't go out and hire a bunch of ace climbers to support him this year. So the scenario is going to be similar. That said, obviously, you know, when there's a, this many climbs in, in, a, in the tour, you know, hey, um, it comes down to the guy with the best legs, too. Hoodie, you got any insight on Mitchelton Scott? I mean, um, we haven't heard too much out of them, but I mean, they've had this ongoing saga with whether or not they would change their name to Manuela Fundacion with this potential Spanish backer. Obviously, that has been chewing up a lot of air in that team. But um, yeah, just nothing around its tour squad. I mean, what, what, what do you expect to see from Mitchelton Scott at the tour? Yeah, what a reversal there on the uh, Spanish takeover, huh? Uh, it sounds like sounds like that water that deal's dead in the water. Uh, the owner Jerry Ryan obviously did not like what he saw. I think there was probably some mis- misunderstanding, obviously, between those big part those parties there in terms of what exactly was for sale and what the plan was. But uh, yeah, you're right. The, the talk that on that team has not been around the racing, at least publicly. Uh, the early indications were, I think, that uh, they were going to bring the both the Yates brothers to the tour. Uh, and possibly both to the Welta um, and then send Chavez to the Giro. Um, but I'm pretty sure the plan right now is to bring both the Yates brothers to the tour and see, because, you know, Adam Yates had that great tour, I think quite a few years now, I think probably about four or five years ago already, where I think he was 2015, 16, where he was fourth. Um, and then since then, he's he's kind of struggled to equal that while, of course, his brother, uh, has won the Welta two years ago, and uh, came, you know had that nice run in the in the Giro 2018. So that that's kind of one of those outsider teams. Another another team, another name that's getting a lot of buzz. Almost everyone I talk to is is bringing this name up without me even asking about them, and that's Tade Pogacar of UAE. Everyone I'm talking to about, hey, you know, how's it going to play out between Jumbo Visma and Ineos, and who else is out there, and you know, Cut Nairo, yeah, you know, whatever, Pino, but. Almost everybody says, you know, watch out for Pogacar because this tour, much like last year's, as Jim was just saying, you know, full of these punchy climbs, you know, that's, that's Pogacar, Pogacar country. And uh, the kid, you know, he's, he's so young and full of beans that he will not, he will be fearless. He will not be holding anything back. And, you know, we all saw what happened in the Welta last year. Three stage wins, almost snatched uh, second place from Valverde in that final climb. So, 
you know, I think Pogacar is a legitimate uh, podium contender and uh, set up, you know, this another great season, really, of these young guys. We've got Remco going for the Giro overall. You know, all this all this new, young, fresh-faced uh, riders really spicing up the racing really makes, I think, quite exciting. You know, Bernal, youngest uh, modern tour winner last year. You know, what's he going to do going back with Ineos? So, um but I think uh, it's gonna it's gonna be uh, Yates. I think both those guys will be going to the tour for Mitchelton Scott. Heard you here first, folks. Keep an eye on Pogachar. I mean, yeah, I think that like looking at this hilly course, Alaphilippe, Pogachar, you know, maybe not the traditional long grinder climbs, but like the punchy climbers, definitely keep an eye out. Um, for that. Uh, last topic for you guys. Uh, Hoodie, you have been doing some reporting around a brewing, a potential brewing labor battle. Look, I know that uh, unions and labor developments aren't exactly the most um, light your pants on fire exciting topics, but they're very important in the world of cycling. And this is a story you've written a couple pieces on already about uh, riders in the world tour coming together and organizing to press the labor union, the CPA for some pretty specific reforms. Um, what's the backstory here and what can you tell us about what this, you know, what could this could mean for cycling? Yeah, it's been an interesting story. Uh, it's been brewing really for a long time. The CPA was actually created in 1999 by the UCI to kind of give a formal voice to the Peloton. You know, the idea is great. You know, let's, let's give the, uh, let's give the riders a, a, a voice and how these decisions are made and the stakeholders, um, but it's not necessarily a standalone riders union like we think about with Major League Baseball having a strong union or, or you know, some of the other American style sports. This is more Euro style where it goes through national federations and it's, it's kind of organized uh, via these national associations where, uh, you know, it's not democratic per se. It's all through committees and, uh, you know, very laden with bureaucracy. Um, so the decisions that are being made sometimes are not really in line with what a lot of the riders kind of view in their own self-interest. Um, there's a lot of criticism that the CPA is a little too cozy with the UCI. They often come down on, on the UCI side on some of these bigger, more controversial issues that invariably come up. Um, but having said that, the CPA has done things to uh, welcome in these new groups. I, I know a few years ago, the Americans were agitating a little bit to kind of break into the group and, and, the CPA said that they. I, I interviewed the uh, Secretary General last week, and they said, in their own defense, you know, we're trying to be more responsive to the riders. But basically, what happened is during this COVID stop, um, the last three months when everyone's just been sitting at home, is that riders just started to ping each other and say, "Hey, you know, let's do something about this. We've been complaining about it for years. You know, we're all sitting at home right now, riding the rollers. You know, let's see if we can actually do something." So they come together, informal group. But they got a petition last week uh, signed by more than half the world tour. Wow. 300 riders have signed on. So it's a legitimate force. And there was a big meeting on Monday uh, in uh, via kind of a Zoom chat, the annual um, assembly with the CPA when they try to make their big formal presentation, trying to get some juice on what down in that meeting. But it sounds like uh, this group's coming in saying we want to make changes to how voting is made. We want to make changes to how uh, – some of the money's being handled from prize money, uh, just generally how the sport is represented from the writer's perspective. And there's rumbling that if they don't kind of get some substantial uh, compromises from the CPA, that they might, you know, try to organize something. That's that's not their official line right now. They're trying to work within the CPA, but the end game could be this could be the start of something bigger and larger. That obviously is for much further down the road. But yeah, we'll see. I mean, riders and you know, invariably. They race all season, they go to the beach for two weeks, and then they're back in the training camps and don't have a lot of time to worry about this stuff while they're racing. And then when their career is over, you know, they're out of the game. So, uh, but you could argue that the riders are the weakest link among the uh, key stakeholders in cycling when, in fact, they could be and should be a much stronger voice. Yeah, and this reminds me of what we saw a few years ago in women's cycling when uh, Iris Slappendel, who we've had on the podcast, um, and uh, Carmen Small started a movement um, for better representation of women's riders, and they ended up starting their own breakaway group called the Cyclists Alliance, which is now the de facto women's labor union in cycling. And, you know, they felt like they 
they you know they were technically represented by the CPA in these matters of labor disputes, et cetera, et cetera. I just felt like you know women's voice had women had basically no voice in the CPA, so why not organize our own um, union? And it started the same way. There was a petition. There was networking going on behind the scenes, WhatsApp messages, emails, and enough um, women's riders. Uh, felt like, you know, hey, we we need to have stronger representation. This is something that's important to us that they were able to start their own group. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we saw a major challenge of the CPA when David Miller tried to run for president of the CPA. He lost. I mean, during that election, it really seemed like there were potential sort of almost like fault lines around nationality where you had the Anglos, you know, the Brits, Australians, Americans aligned on one side and then the Italians and potentially the Spanish aligned on uh, another side. But, you know, this all concerns um, decisions like, yeah, like how prize money is set aside for post-career retirement funds, um, extreme weather protocols, contract negotiations. You know, it's not exactly like... Um, the action of the race, but it's very important in how um, pro cycling is organized. And the fact that there's potentially a new movement in the works or that, you know, big, the riders are organizing to try and have more power, I I see as a really interesting storyline. And it's definitely one we're going to keep following here at Velo News. Uh, Question, Andy, Uh, does the CPA have any role potentially on television rights? I mean, that's that's obviously the huge game changer. Um, and is, is, is that part of that agenda at all? Uh, right now, no. I mean, that's firmly in the hands of the race organizers. Okay. Uh, that's that's a piece of the puzzle. I think the teams are, are more interested in trying to get, of course, we've seen some agitation among the teams wanting to uh, try to reorganize something and share the TV rights, which, you know, in theory would trickle down to the riders with more and better salaries if the teams had more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's not one of the main talking points right now. And I just want to you know remind everyone that this is a pretty serious effort in terms of these things have kind of happened in the past. Uh, riders get all fired up over you know the weather protocol was uh, an issue five or six years ago, and then the David Miller election, uh, people got their hair up over how they could vote. Um, but this is uh, pretty serious. This is more serious than anything that's been organized among the riders so far. I mean, there's big time Grand Tour winners supporting this. Uh, world champions, uh, you know, the monument riders, a lot of rider agents, kind of people involved with some of the uh, national associations and kind of governing body experience. Some of the people are involved. So it'll be interesting to see if this thing can and take off and really to grow into something. Again, well, it's a story we're going to keep following here. So guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I guess the homework for the listeners at home are to keep following stories around the Tour de France's potential health protocols. Keep following stories around uh, Team De Cunic Quickstep, Mitchelton Scott, and their Tour de France plans. Uh, brewing potential labor battle, and then just all sorts of fun information on the tour, which we are 60 days out from. So for Andrew Hood and James Start. Uh, guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, coming up next, we have my conversation with Andrew Willis of Austin's Driveway Series about the decision to return to racing. Coming up. Again, you heard me mention it at the top of the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Whoop, the fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. Is today going to be a big training day? or a legs up on the couch day. Whoop will tell you the app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Listeners get a great deal on Whoop. You can get 15% off by going to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter the code VELONEWS, all caps, VELONEWS, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, optimize your performance with Whoop today. Okay, let's get back to Rasan and Alan. 
All right, my guest today on the Velo News podcast is Andrew Willis. Andrew is the founder and owner of the Driveway Series, uh, one of the most successful amateur racing series in the country. It's in Austin, Texas. It takes place on the Driveway Auto Racing track. And I wanted to talk with Andrew because this past week, June 18th, the Driveway had a bike race, one of the first amateur bike races to occur since the coronavirus shutdown. And Andrew is going to talk to us all about the process he went through to get to that point, what safety protocols looked like, and what the response was from the community. So Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for thinking of us. So, you know, Andrew, I was thinking about you as this um, coronavirus shutdown really started to ramp up into high gear in early to mid-March because that's just about the time when the driveway series gets ramped up. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with the driveway, um, I mean, driveway is one of the most successful weekly amateur racing series in the country. You know, we've had so much discussion about how, hey, road racing is dying in the country and how other people, you know, are people are migrating away from road racing. And meanwhile, driveway is this robust um, community and racing series. But, you know, take me through those first couple weeks when events were getting shut down, you're preparing to have your season and what it was like as an event operator. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that's a big question. So, um, you know, we spend months, um, winding up the series, getting ready to start. In fact, you know, the, the planning for each year starts in June of the previous year. And, um, so we've, we've invested a lot of time and money already by the time the gates open in March. And, uh, this year was no different. Um, of course, you know, I think all of us were kind of watching this thing, uh, this pandemic start and spread globally, you know, through the winter and, and into the early spring. And, um, but I think a lot of us, you know, still just didn't think it was going to come here. Right. Um, and, um, so we started on Thursday, March 12th. That was our kickoff week. And, um, uh, you know, to speak to your point about road dying and all, we had record attendance, everything, uh, sold out. Uh, we had 420 racers for a weeknight race. We probably had another 60 or 70 people on a waiting list. Um, people had come from all over the state. It was by far the strongest start to the series ever. And, um, and of course, other parts of the country um, and even the state had already started their lockdown protocols. And, um, you know, there were little uh, murmurs within the community that maybe it wasn't the best thing for us to be having a race right now. And it was definitely on my radar. And, um, you know, and I think one of the concerns was, you know, what happens if there's an accident and the hospital systems are already taxed? And, um, and really, uh, the decision on whether to start sorry to keep going or not was uh was made for us um the very next day on friday march 13th um the city um limited events to 250 people okay so the first thought and the first start set of text messages and emails i start getting from people in the community is well you'll be fine just limit it to 250 people and you start kind of going through this process in your head like okay well you know 250 people well is that the right thing to do right now even um, and then a day later on Saturday, the 14th, uh, it was down to 50 people. And then by Sunday, it was limited to gatherings of, uh, 10 or more, uh, or sorry, 10 or less. And, uh, you know, and so at that point we're shut down. Right. And we already had week two open and it was almost sold out. And so, you know, we spend like, like I said, we spend months winding the series up and in a matter of a day or two, um, we had to try to wind it down and, um, and, you know, a series like the driveway, um, you know, we have a lease agreement with the track. Um, we have all these vendor agreements um, that support the series and make the series what it is. And um, so a lot of conversations had, um, you know, a lot of money had already been put down on deposits and, um, you know, kind of some, some, some of the vendors, there's an economy of scale if you prepay um, for things. And, um, and, you know, financially, uh, I mean, there, there's a couple of components here. The one there's just the disappointment, right? We've been working hard on it and, um, and it's just great every spring when it starts again, um, I, for everybody, you know, for us, there's this sense of fulfillment for the community, um, everyone's back and it just feels like that first couple of Thursdays, it's like all is right with the world, right? Um, the weather's good, the beer's flowing, the races are happening. 
And to shut that down and to start getting emails and, and angry letters from people about, you know, they don't understand what's going on or they're scared about the pandemic. I totally get that. Um, but it was hard. Um, and financially, uh, a lot of stress. Um, we collect a lot of money up front from the community on season passes and sponsorships that allow us to offset those costs of getting the driveway started. And, um, and we depend on that first two months of having strong attendance to make that up. So, you know, we've always had this policy that, you know, if we had to cancel the series, we'd refund people pro, you know, pro rata uh, on their season passes. And um, well, you know, the, the, as we found out this year, the weakness with that policy is it only works uh, if we get eight or nine weeks into the series and are able to kind of uh, recoup that cash. So um, a lot of sleepless nights trying to figure out like, how am I going to, you know, communicate this to the community and what's going to happen when people start asking and demanding refunds. Um, you know, I, I was envisioning having to shut the business down, uh, losing everything. Um, but, uh, that didn't happen actually. Um, the community was amazingly supportive. Um, lots of, you know, once people started to realize like it wasn't just us shutting down, it was everything shutting down and it was coming from, um, our municipality and then later our state. Um, people started reaching out just saying, Hey, you know, don't worry about the season pass. Uh, keep it. If it means you can come back later and uh, let us know, you know, I had a lot of people actually say, if I need to buy a second one, just so you can open the gates again. Um, and that was really touching because I think it, it just shows how much the driveway means to the community here. Um, yeah. I think that speaks to the fact that it is a community racing series, something that goes yeah. on week in week out. Um, it's in one location. It's, you know, it is to a certain degree, a destination event, but for the most part, it's people in the greater Austin yeah. uh, region. Cause I know that in our outreach and communication with event promoters for more destination, one-off big events, um, you know, yeah, the debate over how to handle refunds, whether to give refunds, if you're in a position to give refunds has had created a lot of tension in their user base. And I, I don't know if all listeners realize the way that, you know, event operation works from a financial standpoint. You know, there are some events that are that have been able to give refunds, but a lot of events aren't because so much, like you said, of the costs are before the thing even starts. It's like, hey, you know, the lease agreement to use the venue, you pay that up front. You know, the um, the fixed costs for start lines and finish lines and banners and all this other stuff, like you're buying that no matter what, you know, you're not going to get a refund on that stuff. So, you know, you, you have to rely on that money coming in to offset that cost. And, and if everything goes away, um, you know, there's not a lot of, you can do. I mean, I guess you could sell your house, Andrew, or you could like, yeah. um, maybe, you know, like go into it. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, uh, yeah. You know, and to add to that, I mean, I think one of the things that, um, is unique to the driveway and our setup is, um, you know, we do have some employees too, and I have them, uh, working on the series, uh, starting back in June of the previous year. And, and so I've got sunk salary costs and, and, um, you know, on, on the one hand, I could say that, you know, me having financial troubles shouldn't be the community's problem. Like if you bought a season pass, you know, the fact that the money's spent, that shouldn't be your problem as a season pass holder. Um, but it is if I don't have the money to pay you back. Right? And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of where we're at. And we were trying to navigate, you know, how do we handle this? But, you know, so far the community has been really supportive. And, um, and I think part of the reason the driveway has survived and existed as it has, um, as long as it has and has grown the way it has is because, you know, when we've had challenges in the past, I've always, uh, found a way to make it work. Like I've always found a way to make things right with people. And, um, and I've been calling all the season pass holders the last month as we started winding back up and it looked like, okay, we're going to get to race again to see where they were at. Um, I haven't gone, gotten through the whole list yet, but, um, and, um, you know, just having conversations with people and, and there are some people who have experienced financial hardship. They do need a refund. And, you know, what I tell them is, is like, I will make sure you get your refund but I can't do it this week. Like I'm going to have to space the refunds out. 
And, um, and that's how I'm working with people. And, and I think people have been really receptive to it. I'm being honest. And I think that's all any promoter can do is just try to be honest about the situation and try to find a way to make it work. Now, the driveway is like all races. You know, over the last few months, there hasn't been a ton of clarity about when we're going to get back to the events, what is going to happen with the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. I saw that you guys were doing a weekly Zwift racing series, um, you know, getting creative like everybody else, using indoor cycling, other stuff to try and keep that community feel going. Um, what was the reception like around the Zwift events? Oh, it was great. Uh, people were very uh, thankful, uh, grateful for the uh, the way the chance to connect virtually. Um, and we had one of the things that was cool to me is we had a lot of, uh, you know, racers that I've seen move off over the years, uh, move to other states or even other countries. And I'd see their names pop up on there and they'd send a Facebook message just saying, you know, I know it was on Zwift, but it was still great to feel like I was part of the driveway. And um, and we tried to make it as fun as possible. We had a, we, we kept our announcer that we hire on Thursday nights going and he did a live Facebook uh, stream. And it's, you know, basically just him drinking some beers and trying to keep track of what was happening on the Zwift race. It was just funny. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like our role uh, during the shutdown was just, can we provide people a distraction from what's happening and a way to feel connected still? And it's not the same, obviously, but um, for a lot of people, it, it seemed to kind of help fill that that void. And then we did some Strava social distance time trials and um, just trying to give people something to do um, and distract them. Because I think everybody was just kind of sitting around like, what do we do? You know? <laughs> Well, take me through then the process of coming back. It sounds like you had some test events. You had your first real life event um, this past week. But, you know, who were you in contact with? Who was giving you guidance? And what were the steps that you had to go through ultimately to come back? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So, uh, you know, I'll preface this with, uh, you know, we were we were content to stay shut down um, the rest of the year if need be. Um and, um, um, you know, we, the way some of our agreements are structured, um, like with the track and, and other vendors, um, they're not enforceable if, um, the event isn't in compliance with either federal or state or local restrictions. So having these, these state and city, uh, mandates, uh, made it to where we didn't have to keep paying on these things. And, um, and so we had ratcheted things back. There were a few bills we couldn't get out of, but my wife and I were happy to float those in the meantime and just kind of see where things got us. And, you know, we were hopeful that maybe later in the year it would be safe to open. And then uh, at the beginning of June, uh, our governor um, put out a mandate that allowed uh, adult recreational sports and as soon as, as he did that, all of a sudden, the agreements that had been put on hold were enforceable. And I started getting calls um, from different vendors that they needed their money. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, uh, this idea of being shut down, uh, we, we couldn't do it. And um, so we uh, looked at all the guidelines. Um, there was the Texas Department of uh, uh uh, let's see, the DSHS, Department of State uh, Health Services, they had um, a set of guidelines and, and checklists for event promoters. Um, so we consulted that, and USA Cycling had put out a um, spreadsheet. I don't know if you've seen it um, with uh, mitigation uh, protocols, and it kind of it generates a score for you at the end and kind of gives you a risk level, and it's based on CDC info and input. And... Um, so we filled all that out and it's based on local transmission rates um, at the time that you're filling it out. And, um, you know, the lower the score, the worse uh, or the higher the risk level and a perfect score with no risk would be a hundred. And uh, we scored an 86. So we were in considered low risk. Um, we, um, we consulted with a few doctors here in town um, about how things that race at the driveway about how things were looking at the hospitals and what their thoughts were on it. Um, and you know, they're out there and they're actually out there racing. Uh, they were there last Thursday um, and they were all for it. Um, and then we, we are involved with another event on Tuesday nights that started up at the beginning of June too, um, 
it's bike night at Circuit of the Americas. And, um, and that's just a ride on the F1 track, um, non-competitive. But that's sponsored by a hospital, um, and that's the title sponsor. And, you know, as, as another event promoter here in town uh, put it to me, like, the fact that the hospital that sponsors it is pushing to restart should be the endor- the final endorsement you need. Um, so we, uh, we went ahead and started. And again, we didn't really have much of a choice with uh, some of the vendor agreements we had. Uh, we had to start bringing in some kind of level of income uh, to be able to try and at least pay those and minimize the amount of money that we were going to lose. Um, so we had two weeks of practice sessions and um, we uh, took all the DSHS uh, protocols and USAC's recommendations into account. And, um, you know, we, uh, we switched to pre-reg only. So we got rid of, you know, this need to hand over money or credit cards at registration. Uh, it's an online waiver. Um, the driveway is a gated facility and you, uh, registration in the past was always inside um, the gate, but now it's outside of the gate. And um, so you check in, uh, if you're new, you know, obviously you need a bib number, right? Um, so that's kind of slid across the table. Um, and um, we have medics, uh, licensed paramedics there who do a temperature check. Um, if you're showing a fever, uh, there's a tent in the shade. You're allowed to go sit in that for 10 or 15 minutes because some people ride out there and they're, they're hot, right? Um, and then they'll do another temperature check. If you're over, uh, I think the recommendation is 100 degrees, um, you're not allowed to come in. Um, and, uh, you know, we just refund you and send you on your way. Um, and, um, there's no spectators allowed inside. Um, so it's only racers when you're not racing, you have to wear a mask. So even when you're warming up, uh, we've spaced the porta potties out. We've, um, put some stuff down on the ground to, uh, indicate where people need to stand if they're in line for the porta potties. We changed our water cooler setup. Um, so we have this old pickup truck bed trailer that we welded this rack on two years ago and it has all these coolers. And um, rather than have five coolers on each side, it's now uh, one cooler in each corner. Um, and we bought these aftermarket attachments for our coolers so that there's no longer a push button. You know, like now we don't have everyone's little hands touching this button. Um, it's just a, um, it's an apparatus where once you put your bottle underneath, the water just starts coming out. Um, so it's touchless. Um, we have a couple of people who, um, their entire job all night is just to walk around with Clorox wipes and they're constantly wiping down the handles on the porta potties inside and out, uh, anything else that people might touch. Um, and, uh, and then staging, uh, the, the one thing that kind of seemed to keep coming up when we talked to doctors and what we'd seen in the documentation is that, uh, you know, there's. I mean, I know that there's conflicting evidence on this, but um, you know, the risk of airborne transmission while racing was considered low because of the airflow, but it's considered high in the staging area where people might be shoulder to shoulder uh, for 10 minutes waiting for their race to start. And um, so we put a lot of thought uh, into how do we how do we keep people socially distant during staging? Because of course people are going to want to inch up and try to get the best spot possible. Right. And, um, so we, uh, we used fencing. We have a, a bunch of that just modular event fencing and we created shoots that are six feet apart. So we have three or four shoots. Um, so the riders there, it's only one person wide, so they can roll in on their bike. And so they're you know, front wheel to rear wheel, front wheel to rear wheel. So everyone's spaced out in the chute. Um, and we do all the staging there. And to get rid of this sense of urgency to line up and be at the front of the chute, um, since it is a criterion, um, the first lap or first half a lap is neutral. So everyone, everyone can come out of the chute, get up to speed. You know, we have a, a couple of riders in safety vests riding at the front that keep the pace low until everyone's out of the chute and we've gotten about a half lap around and then they pull off and the race is on. And, um, and then the final thing we did is we restricted, um, all the field sizes are at 50%. We're only allowing, uh, 50%. So, you know, a hundred person field is now 50. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's the, Oh, uh, we stopped printing out results. The results are just online. Everyone has the link. And, um, 
we do uh, either masked podiums or socially distant podiums. So, um, and, you know, we're trying our best um, to make it work. Um, we spent two weeks doing a non-competitive version of the driveway where it was just a ride, but we actually would set up the fencing and, um, you know, and that was a learning process. I'm glad we did it before we actually had the races um, because it allowed us to tweak some things um, as we got feedback from the people that participated. Um, and then last week, the races started. Um, we we opened up Reg the Thursday before, so on June 11th, and um, the races sold out in about uh, I think 15 minutes. And um, and to me, that uh, that was pretty telling right there. You know, I was expecting crickets, um, and instead, it was sold out. And we had people emailing asking how could they get a spot. And we just, we had to tell them we're sorry, like it's just first come first serve right now. And, and if things continue in a positive manner um, and things are looking good, we can increase the capacity, but we just have to see what that's like. So what's um, your total number right now? What was the total number for this past week's event? Uh, it was a uh, 188 and I think we're at 194 right now. Mm -hmm. Um all the men's fields sold out and the women's didn't. So there's some ability to fluctuate right there. And are you then in touch with like local authorities? Do you have any um, people from health departments or anything like that coming by to check it out to, you know, scrutinize or give you the thumbs up or thumbs down on your setup? Uh, no, we don't. Um, you know, we did our department, our Texas department of health uh, forms and everything there fine. Uh, the city actually changed some of their, uh, restri uh, restrictions last week, um, before the event on Thursday. And so we actually called the city to get clarification and, um, they looked at all of our stuff and told us we we're fine. Um, you know, really, um, with the numbers of people we're talking about at the driveway, you know, if we're talking about 50 people, um, you know, there's really with some volunteers and maybe people uh, warming up for the next race or cooling down. As soon as you're done racing um, and there's no reason for you to be there, we do ask you to leave the property. Um, so there's, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe 75 people total on a 90 acre facility. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I, from what I can gather and talking to the, you know, the city and all, uh, it's just not considered big enough to be on their radar, you know, um, it's just not a lot of people. So, so going forward, I mean, what are your, what are your personal protocols or plans? You know, look, we all hope that a thing bad happens and that no one contracts the virus, but I think a lot of people are looking at public events right now and looking at the news and the potential for, well, the, the increase in reported cases and the potential for the second wave. I mean, um, personally, what are your plans if, you know, someone does come down with it or they feel like that the situation isn't safe enough? Yeah. I mean, so our focus, you know, like I said earlier, we were content to stay shut down and, and our hand was kind of forced by the governor's order. Um, the, the rise in cases right now is, is alarming. Um, and I, I am worried about it. Um, I do, I do think based on our governor's uh, most recent press conferences last Monday and the trend here that, um, you know, we're going to get shut down again here soon, uh, which I'm fine with. Um, I think that's probably the right call. Um, I need you know, the state or the city to tell me that we can't do it so that I can turn off of our agreements again. Um, I have no problem shutting down. Um, I, I do wish we were shut down right now, actually. Um, I'd prefer that we weren't uh, risking it. Um, but at the same time, since we are open, we do have to pay these bills. Um, you know, I also see it as kind of a personal responsibility. Um, the people that are coming out, um, you know, it, to me, it's, it's up to them to make an informed decision about whether or not they feel comfortable with the risk. Um, you know, we're not trying uh the, the information we put out there we haven't we've tried to stay out of whether or not we think it's safe or not uh we've just been very matter of fact with here are the current standards um here's our protocols and let the the rider 
decide for themselves. The the main thing we've been pushing is if you don't feel good, don't come out. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, and you know, the community's response um, has been overwhelmingly positive. I think people are um, ready to start racing. I mean, there are people who aren't feeling, don't feel safe about coming out and I totally get it. Um, you know, or, you know, maybe they have an immune compromised partner. Um, and I understand that, like, you know, right now I feel like the driveway series is for the people who feel safe participating in the event. And, um, and that's just kind of where we're at right now, um, on it. So for better or worse. Um, and, um, yeah. Well, we'll continue to follow uh, what goes on with the Driveway Series, Andrew, but I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your experience. Andrew Willis, founder and owner of Austin's Driveway Series, and uh, yeah, check out his series. It's one of the most successful and I think one of the really bright spots of uh, American road racing right now. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you.